This, this sermon is one that, um, that has a lot of deep meaning for me. This sermon is one that, uh, for a room this size and for those listening, there are some people in here who this sermon can absolutely be life transformative depending on how we engage in it. And once again, I can't preach good enough for any of that to happen. We have to have the Holy Spirit. We have to have God to move in this place in our midst. And so I would encourage you as you hear these, these uh, as, I, as I preach, that you would open your heart and say, God, would you speak to me today? That's what we want. We're going to go back to our Genesis series. You know, we've been working through Genesis throughout the, the year, and we have gone from Abraham, creation, Abraham, Isaac, we had some Jacob and Esau, and today we're still with Jacob and Esau before we move on in a future weeks to my favorite person in the Old Testament. But we're at Jacob and Esau, and one thing that always amazed me about the story of Jacob and Esau isn't how Jacob is blessed even when he seems unworthy. Today we're not even going to focus on Jacob. We're going to focus on Esau. We're looking at a deeper look at Esau's life because there's something that he shows us here in this passage of Genesis that I believe each of us needs to be challenged with today. Remember, as a youth, Esau was deceived by his younger brother, Jacob. Not once, but twice, the birthright and the blessing both taken. Jacob had cost Esau a fortune. Jacob had betrayed not only his big brother, but also their father, Isaac, and so you can imagine Esau not only having been betrayed, but watching someone betray your father. And Esau makes a vow. He promises to kill his baby brother, Jacob. He wants to make good on it. He's a mighty outdoorsman, it tells us, a mighty hunter. And Jacob believes him when he says he's going to kill him. And Jacob flees and goes to live with his uncle Laban. And for 20 years, Jacob is separated from his family, and he continues to struggle and scheme and plan and deceive and hustle the entire time. But what about Esau during those days? What about Esau during those years? Well, I'll be honest, we don't know a lot about Esau. We know who he married. We can assume based on cultural context that he stayed there in the, the tribe of his father Isaac, his father Isaac, who is God's chosen patriarch, Abraham's son. Both Isaac and Esau had been betrayed by Jacob. And I wonder, can you put yourself in these situations, I wonder how they referred to their brother, their son. I wonder how they referred to Jacob. I wonder how they talked about him. 20 years he deceived and stolen and left, and they were, they were left to discuss it. Uh, did, did Isaac, did Isaac mentor Esau and help guide him through this pain of betrayal? We don't know. We don't know any of that. But we do know in the 20 years that Jacob is gone, that Esau and Jacob have vastly different experiences in, those time, in the time when they're apart. And we see the evidence of it in the experience of these experience when they come back together two decades later. Let's pick up their account in Genesis 32, verse 4. Jacob's going to go meet his brother Esau, who the last thing he heard from him was, I'm going to kill you. So Esau sends this message. Humble greetings from your servant Jacob. I mean, you can hear the desperation in here, right? Until now, I've been living with Uncle Laban, and now I own cattle and donkeys and flocks of sheep and goats and many servants, men and women. I have, I have sent these messengers to inform you, my Lord, not bro, of my coming, hoping that you will be friendly to me. After delivering the message, the messengers returned to Jacob and said, we met your brother Esau, and guess what? He's already on his way with an army of 400 men. 
The next verse tells us, Jacob was terrified at the news. He should be. Esau has 400 men. Esau made a promise 20 years ago. The last interaction they had, Esau made clear his intentions, and it seems by all clues here in the text that he's going to make good on it. He has 400 men to come meet his little brother, to come greet him home. I mean, it's been 20 years. Do you know how much bitterness can take root in 20 years? I mean, you have, I mean some of you do have an idea. You felt it in your life. Some of you know someone who something happened to them at some point, and it's been years, decades, and that bitterness and that unforgiveness has just grown, and it begins to grow around your character, and it begins to grow in your relationships. It affects us. Jacob, in his fear, he comes up with this elaborate scheme. Obviously, Esau is coming to kill me. Obviously, Esau has 400 men, a fighting army, so I, have, I, have, I only have what I could do, and that's this. Jacob thought, oh, I will try to appease him by sending gifts ahead of him, of, of me. Like just, you know, gift baskets and mini muffins and whatever you send someone to say, I'm sorry, you know. When I see him in person, perhaps he'll be friendly to me. So I tried the humble m message, I, I, but now I'm just going to start sending him. And so he sends him a steady caravan of gifts after gifts after gifts. And finally, in Genesis 33:3, they come face to face, face to face. Then Jacob went on ahead. You got to see this. As he approached his brother, he bowed down to the ground seven times before him. Face to the ground. But, verse 4, Esau ran to meet Jacob. Now, you can imagine what happens next, right? Esau finally gets to make good on the promise that he's made. Esau finally, he's been, he's been waiting. He's been imagining for 20 years. Oh, I know exactly how this goes. Uh, oh, he sent me these gifts? Guess what? Esau, once he kills Jacob, he can take everything. The gifts don't matter. I don't want your gifts of caravans, of servants. I want it all. You can imagine. I mean, how would you respond if you had the person who hurt you the most right there? Completely vulnerable. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they both wept. Esau meets Jacob and offers him a hug, a kiss, and tears. It amazes me. And this, uh, this part always amazed me after all the betrayal, all the things that have happened, that Esau offers forgiveness I can only guess in the 20, I can only guess, we don't know for sure, in the 20 years of absence, while Jacob was off hustling and scheming, that Esau's heart was somehow softened by their father, Isaac. That maybe Isaac, the son of Abraham, the, the patriarch, maybe in those years apart, that Isaac helped Esau come to a place of forgiveness. We don't know. We don't know how it happened. Now, I want to say some, something clear. Esau is not a saint. And there's a lot about him we should not emulate. But the forgiveness here in this instance is something to take note of. He was lied to. He was betrayed. He, he was tricked. He was robbed. He watched his father get tricked all by his brother. He wanted to kill him. And yet here when he sees him, he runs to him and greets him, hugs him, and cries and welcomes him. Esau is not the shining example of morality and character. But he's made an important discovery and decision here. He's decided to forgive. He didn't have to, and he didn't need to. He chose to. 
Somewhere along the way, Esau chose to let go of the bitterness and revenge. And it made me wonder, you know, if Esau can forgive such a massive betrayal, and again, if you put yourself in the story, think of your own father being tricked, your own self being tricked, your entire future being forfeited by your brother. If you can put yourself in that, in the level of betrayal, the level of injustice, the level of abuse, how does he forgive? And, and here's the question we're going to wrestle with. How do we forgive? How do we forgive those who have hurt us the most? Can we? Should we? Well, I want to turn from here to the, to the New Testament because Jesus, he's mentoring his disciples and they say, how should we pray? And he says, well, I'll teach you how to pray. It's like this. And you've heard the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says in Matthew 6, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we also forgive those who've sinned against us. I want to zoom in on that last part. Forgive us as we forgive others. If you'll notice, there's two forgivenesses here. One, it seems, where, where God is letting me off the hook of my sin, and the other, where it seems that I'm letting someone else off, off the hook. What is this saying? What is this meaning? I want to start first with forgive us our sins, that God would forgive us. We believe, based on the Bible's teaching, that when a person comes to faith in Jesus, when you become a Jesus follower, your sins are forgiven by his work. That his work on the cross, his death and resurrection, covers the sins that you've committed. And you're like, well, which ones? We believe that his covering of sin was complete. That the sins you've committed in the past are forgiven. The sins you committed during Thursday's Bronco game, those are forgiven. And the sins you will, you will commit in the future because of God's, Jesus' great sacrifice, those are also forgiven. That's what we believe the gospel of Jesus to be. That his work on the cross was so complete and so powerful, I am forgiven, which is great news. Really good news. In fact, Ephesians 2.8 says this, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you, you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for good things we've done, so none can boast. It's a gift. We've been given this gift of forgiveness that covers our life. Praise be to Jesus. So if that's how we are forgiven... What about the second part of that verse? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Now, I've encountered some teaching through the years of people who believe that this verse teaches that God will only forgive my sins if I forgive other people's. If I forgive their sins, then he forgives me. And that is called conditional forgiveness. At its very core, it's a belief that forgiveness and salvation are based on something I am doing, on my works. And, 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 and God will forgive me if I forgive others. And anytime you create a religion uh, where there's a human condition on divine gifts, we're on shaky ground. But this is, this is, an old, this is oldest time. It's as old as time to put in the equation of God's forgiveness to put something that we have to do. Like, God will forgive you if you send me the small gift of 1999. God will forgive you if you abstain from whatever. For my grandmother, it was dancing. That was the worst thing that someone could do. I mean, God will forgive you if you do good deeds. Like, there's, there's a condition on the, that, that belief. In fact, this is, this is so funny. Um, 
Someone asked me beforehand, she goes, can, can, can the children be in there today? And I was like, well, I don't know. Well, let's, I'm going to tell you something that was funny in the Bible. This is funny. In Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas are on a missionary trip. They're out there all over the missionary trip, and they're, they're preaching Jesus, and they're, and they're doing all these things, but they get called back. They get called back because there's a church committee meeting. Those are always fun. And the committee meeting is having a debate about salvation and forgiveness. And these people believed, they called, they called Paul and Barnabas, hey, get back off the mission field where you're doing God's work because we need to talk about this because we believe that you can only be, have salvation and forgiveness if you are circumcised. I mean, women's rights at the time were cheering. Like, you know, we're in! <laughs> Circumcision, a condition of salvation. Can you imagine those membership classes when you get to the fine print? You're like, wait, What? Paul says in verse 11, no, no. We believe salvation is through grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. No condition that you're what we're doing. The reality is that Jesus forgives us and therefore we are called to go forth and forgive others. Jesus illustrates this when he's, he's talking to his disciples in Matthew 18. In fact, in Matthew 18, 21, Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Good question. But then he just throws out a random number, or what seems random. Seven times? Should I forgive seven times, Lord? Now, what we don't know is, is that Peter is trying to seem gracious. He's trying to seem like he's really got it together because the Jewish rabbis always, they taught based on this, this verse in Amos 3 that you only had to forgive three times. Three strikes, you're out. So when Peter goes, how many times should I forgive? Seven times. I mean, wow, Peter, you're, you're, not, you're more than double what the rabbis require. That's some holy ground. Now, I mean, he believes he's getting some extra credit here. And how does Jesus respond? Peter came and asked, how many times should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times. And Jesus says, no, not seven, 70 times seven. And all of those of you doing math right now, and those of you who are very literal, you're going to be tempted to think, well, I have to forgive them 490 times, but cross me that 491st time, and I am done. <laughs> you're about 480 right now. You're thin ice. You see, I don't, grace is not a number. What is Jesus saying here? He's, he's saying something, but it's not about math. He's not saying, no, not seven, 490. You guys, math is way off. No, no, he's saying something. There's some history here, and here's the history. Um, the number seven in the Old Testament context refers to perfection. Seven is perfection. Seventy being ten times perfection is the symbol of completion. In other words, you should be forgiving people to perfect completion. Forgiving seven times would be perfect under the Old Testament law. Forgiving 70 times seven, well, that, that would be something altogether. What if Jesus was referencing another verse in the Old Testament? I'm glad you asked. If you go to the prophet Daniel in chapter 9, deep in the Old Testament, Daniel's talking about the end of the age. The end. And after, after he says this, after 70 times seven, after 70 sevens, there'll be an end to sin. 
The world will have an everlasting righteousness, prophecy fulfilled. Jesus is telling Peter to forgive 70 times seven, perhaps referring to where Daniel says 70 times seven is referencing the end of the age, the end of time. What could Jesus mean here? Peter, don't concern yourself with counting how many times I should forgive somebody. Peter, instead, you just forgive until the end of the age. Peter, you just keep forgiving and forgiving and forgiving until time runs out. You forgive and you forgive and you forgive until you look up and someday there I am coming back. That's when I'll take over. But until then, you forgive. Jesus is saying, until the end of your life, until the end of days, based on the forgiveness you have been given, be a person who forgives. Then he tells this parable, and I'm just going to read this parable. We're not going to have it up. I'm going to read this parable, and I want you to get a sense, because this is Jesus teaching them right afterwards what it looks like. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with his servants who had borrowed money from him. So the king has people who are in debt to him. In the process, the king noticed one of the debtors owed him millions of dollars. Now, in the, in the, in the original language here, it, it's a debt that he cannot pay. It's a debt so large he could never pay it. He can't pay it, so his master ordered that the man's entire life and family and everything he owned be sold to pay the debt. But when the man heard this, he had a debt he couldn't pay. It says he fell before the king and begged him, please be patient with me. I, I will pay all of it. And the king was filled with pity. He released him. It says he forgave the entire debt, all of it, a debt he could not pay. But when that man, who was just forgiven, it says when he left the king, he walked out and he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars, a payable amount. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded payment right now. That servant fell down and said, please be patient with me. I will pay it. But the forgiven servant wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and thrown in prison until the date the debt could be paid. Well, some of the other servants saw this and it said that they were very upset. They went to the king and they told him everything that they had seen, everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man whom he had forgiven. He said, you evil servant. I forgave you a tremendous debt. Like, I forgave you a debt you could never, ever repay because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent him away until his debt was paid. You, you see, the people of God have been forgiven such a debt of sin by God. We live in the light of such divine love and grace that we should live our lives as we leave the king going out and giving away grace to other people. In fact, Jesus says in John 13, 35, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are mine. You see, forgiveness and love should be standard operating procedure for the Jesus follower. It should be who we are. 
love and grace. Those are symptoms. Those are indications. If we're out there loving and giving grace and forgiveness, others should be saying that's an indication that that person's a Jesus follower. Jesus says we will be known by our great love for our grace and forgiveness. We have been forgiven everything. We, because of Jesus, have been forgiven of a debt we cannot pay. And we reap the rewards in eternity. And we should leave the throne and go forgive those who have wronged us. So why is it important to forgive? Because bitterness and unforgiveness will impact you. It will impact your your marriage. It will impact how you parent. It will impact your, your joy and your peace. It will impact your biology. It will impact your mental health. This has been proven. Bitterness and unforgiveness will have a holistic impact on your life and how you operate. Studies have found that people who forgive are more satisfied in their lives and get this, have less depression, they struggle with less anxiety, they have less stress and anger and less hostility. People who hang on to grudges, it says, are more likely to experience depression. And in wake of what happened and the bitterness they have about it, they are more likely to experience post-traumatic stress disorder as well as health conditions that go with these. So so living as a Jesus follower who's had my sin covered by such a great grace and love and yet refusing to pass it on, refusing to give forgiveness and grace, that's not how I was intended to live. My own biology tells me that. Our bodies by our creator were not meant to hold on to grudges and bitterness. It, it, it hurts us. Every relationship when, is infected when someone is bitter towards something. You can be bitter towards someone over here, and it will impact this relationship over here. Our mental ha- health is impacted by our lack of forgiveness. If you're here today and you're holding something against someone, if you're refusing to forgive them, I I would implore you to begin to start this journey of stepping into the prayer that Jesus told us to pray. Now, what does forgiveness not mean? This is important. What does it not mean? Bob Enright, PhD psychologist, says one common mistake One mistaken belief is that forgiveness means that you just let the person who hurt you completely off the hook. There's no justice. Forgiveness is not the same as justice. A a former victim of abuse doesn't have to go um, remain with their abuser in a potentially dangerous situation. But the victim can find forgiveness. Quote, whether I forgive or I don't forgive um, isn't going to affect the justice. It's not an external thing. Forgiveness happens in my own skin. Forgiveness doesn't mean that justice isn't done if there's a crime. Forgiveness doesn't mean that the abuser isn't held accountable. The Bible tells us to forgive, but I'll say this. If if you have been abused, forgiving that person will be very difficult, but it doesn't mean that you have to go let them be a part of your life ever again. The person that I was most wronged by, that I forgave, God let me know I did not have to trust them ever again. You don't have to overlook the abuse and go back to the situation or the crime or whatever happened. Forgiving someone doesn't mean they don't have to deal with the consequences of their actions. Does that make sense? Many of you have heard some of my story. If you've been here in the church for a while, you've heard some of my story in my past. And over the next coming weeks as we talk about Joseph, I'm going to begin telling you some more of it. But I want to let you know, I put this in this sermon because I don't, 
I, I don't preach this lightly. And when I challenge you at the end, it's not something that I haven't wrestled with. I have excruciating experience in this department. And I know that for many of you, the thought of forgetting someone who is actively hurting you, your family, and your finances, and your life, I know the thought of forgiving them seems like ridiculous. It's maddening. It's foolishness. The thought of forgiving someone in your past who has hurt you so greatly, I want to dismiss that. I will say this, I understand that because I've been there. I've been there. It seemed ridiculous for me to forgive my first wife. I was married and living in Georgia, and she was unfaithful in our first year of marriage. And through the next seven years of trying to make it work, there was chronic infidelity that crushed my spirit. The marriage wasn't viable, and we divorced. And I lost much of my life through that time. And again, we're going to go into some of that as we move forward. But I, I want to let you know, um, I felt like she had cost me everything. I had a dream job. I had a lot of success. I had dreams in, uh, in, in every area of my life that were coming true. Friendships. I had to give up and, and move. And, and I was broken. And I'll say this. And I want to be very honest here. And again, say some things that maybe... The pastor shouldn't say, because I want to let you know that, that your thoughts are valid, your feelings are valid, and maybe you need to address these. I'll say this. I, bitterness towards her was very easy. Because of her, I had lost more than I could ever regain. I had lost my whole life. And then I felt God asking me to forgive her. And I was like, how do you forgive the person who betrayed you repeatedly? How do you forgive the person who cost you everything? How do you forgive the person who left you financially indebted at a level you didn't know about? How do you forgive the person who actively hurt your heart? And some of you, as we talk about forgiveness, you've been through your past. You're in a present situation where you ask those same things. How? And I'll be really honest. I didn't even want to forgive her. Bitterness, blame, was easy. It was effortless. In the wake of such a hurt, bitterness was my defense. I didn't want to forgive. I didn't think she deserved to be forgiven. I didn't want to have to deal with that. It was easy to just stay how it was. I heard this illustration about bitterness and unforgiveness that hit me during the time. It says, bitterness is a poison that you drink and then you wait for the other person to die. And man, I waited. Those nights where you're up late fuming and wrestling and hurt and pain, unable to sleep while they're in bed, probably sleeping peacefully. Who is the unforgiveness hurting? Me. But, but if I forgive them, they'll go free. No, no, no. If you forgive them, you will go free. Let God deal with some of those things. Again, not natural consequences, but the forgiveness is something that happens within. So God began to take me on this, this painful journey, and it, it, is, it, is, it was excruciating for me. I knew this as I, as, I, as I looked at my life. I could not continue to hold on to this unforgiveness and be the person, the man that I wanted to be. It was poisoning me. 
It was, it was a dark place. And God, God I was in my, I had my journal, and I was talking to God about this, and God asked me to do something. And when he asked me to do this, I slammed the journal closed, and I just walked away for like a week, more than a week. God said, every time you think of her, pray, God, will you bless her? I didn't want God to bless her, if I was honest. I walked away from that journal. I walked away from that prompt, but it wouldn't leave me alone. I pray that God would bless her every time I think of her. The first time I, the first time I formed the words in my mouth, the first time I began to say it, it just tasted like bile. It was just like, it was sour. It was like, but I did it. And I did it the next day. And I learned something through this. Do you know how often you think about somebody that you have bitterness toward? I had no idea, but it was a lot. And you might not have any idea, but it's more than you know. Because if I'm gonna pray that God bless her every time I think of her, I found myself having to pray that God bless her all the time. And over time, it got easier. It wasn't so hard after a while. And then God asked me to change my prayer. He said, now I want you to pray that I bless her financially. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? I, I did the thing. I did what you asked me. Pray that I bless her financially. That was hard. And very, I started all over again in the process. Began to pray. I did that for months. Began to pray that God, you would bless her and you would bless her financially. And over the time, I, I began to feel something. It didn't happen all at once. But it was as if an infection was leaving me, and I felt not as bitter, not as anger, not, not as much anger. And, I, and I'll tell this, I didn't feel the hurt as much anymore. It was, I was praying for her, but it was me who was healing. And then he asked me to do something. I, then he asked me to do something. I think back to who I was at that, that time. He asked me to do something that I, I felt was just impossible. <laughs> he said, when she comes to mind, you pray that I bless her relationship. Her relationship was with someone that she had been with while we were married. And uh, like, how do I pray, God, that you bless her there? It took me a long time now, this, this, is not, this was not days, this was not weeks, this was not even months. This, this journey of God and I uh, cleaning out these wounds, this, was, this took a long time for me to eat. That prayer took a long time for me to pray. I wrestled with it. I wrestled with God. I found that the final dregs of my bitterness were the most ugly. The last bit of resentment and anger and loss, and guess what was below all that? It's hurt. The last part of my hurt. I remember praying that prayer for the first time. And I felt I had a physical reaction, like, ugh. But from that, that day on, every time I would think of her, I would pray, God, bless her, bless her financially, bless her relationally. And over that year that, John, God, that God took me through on that journey, um, I healed more in those times than I could even have hoped. And you know what? 
and this is, this is honest truth, and I ask my wife's per- permission before I ever go into any of these uh, deep things of our past. I, want, I honor my wife and Amy in that. Um, and she can tell you with all sincerity that I can pray for the person who hurt me the most, completely free, that God would bless her. He would bless her financially. He'd bless her relationally. He'd bless her uh, physically, mentally, emotionally. God would just bless her. Now, she has no idea, but this is what I learned. It, it, it was never about her. And Orchard, and those places where you are holding that unforgiveness, and it's so much about them, you're going to find that it's not about them at all. That God wants to do a work in your life. I found that what I did I found that the journey God took me on, it it didn't set her free. It set me free. Truly, I can tell you in all honesty. I tell you this, and I go into the deep emotion of it because I know for some people here, some of you are like, I don't have anything like that. Some of you really do. Some of you know exactly what this is. Some of you have someone from your past who hurt you so deeply, Somebody has, some of you have somebody in your present who's actively angling to hurt you. But I want you to know I'm not asking you to do something I haven't done. And I know, so, so, and when I preach a sermon, it's easy to preach a sermon and a preacher go, hey, you need to forgive because Jesus forgave you. And then leave it at that. But man, I know what it's like. I know the excruciating experience that it can be. And so when we have, when I, when I challenge you to forgive how, as we've been forgiven, I'll tell you, I'm, I've been there and I'm on the other side of that in some ways and I want to promise you something, that when you forgive the person who hurt you most or who is hurting you most, on the other side of that is a freedom and a joy and a peace that's worth all the gold in the world. And, and I want to try something right now and some of you will not be able to do this and that's Okay. But we're going to pray a prayer. And those of you who can't do this, I want you to just earmark this prayer in your life and come back to it at another time. But I want us to pray that God would bless that person in your life. And some of you know exactly who it is. And you're like, oh, preacher. (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. No, 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 no. Some of you might not have a person, but you might have a people, a group of people who look different or vote different or behave different that you just, you resent. Whatever it is for you, Who is it? And I want us to take just a minute in the quietness of your own heart. I want you to try if you can step into this challenge and pray with me. So close your eyes. And pray this in your heart. God, I ask that you bless and then say their name. some of us, that's really hard. For some of us, we, I, I know, I know it's, it's too much right now. Again, I want you to just earmark that and come back to it. I want you to leave it in the open because God wants to do a work there. I have learned something from personal experience, Orchard, and that's this. You cannot consistently pray for God to bless someone and still be bitter toward them. I was praying the wrong prayers for years. I needed to pray for a prayer of blessing. 
because in prayer you are changed and over time you'll witness your hurt and your bitterness dissolve and then you will be free I want us to put this prayer on the, on the screens I want you to pray this with me let's pray this together our Father who is in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we also forgive those who have sinned against us and at this sermon a sermon like this when it comes to forgiveness we cannot end anywhere else but at the cross cannot end anywhere else but at the cross that is that is where our sins were forgiven the cost was huge the price tag huge it is only because of the cross that we can dare step into a challenge to forgive people in such a courageous way and so as you go into communion and as you take partake of the the body of Jesus and the, and the, the symbol of his his blood I want you to pray and ask him to forgive you God forgive me for my sin and then help me forgive others. Help me forgive that person.